0: Our Old Testament reading today is Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 11. Isaiah 61, 1 through 11. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God.
0: Today's psalm is Psalm 146, and we will read responsively by whole verse. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord.
1: Indeed, as long as I am.
0: Put not your trust in princes, nor in any child of man, for there is no help in them. For when one breathes his last, he shall return again to the earth, and in that day all his thoughts perish. Blessed is the one who has the God of Jacob for his help, and whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is therein, who keeps his promise forever, who does right to those who suffer wrong and who feeds the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord helps those who have fallen. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord cares for the strangers in the land. He defends the fatherless and widow, but makes the way of the ungodly he makes crooked. The Lord shall be king forevermore, even your God, O Zion, throughout all generations. Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our New Testament reading today is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be
1: to God. The gospel reading this morning comes from Luke, Chapter 4, beginning at the 14th verse. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory Glory to to you, you, Lord Christ. Christ. As Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in all their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. But they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do in your hometown here, do, do in here in your hometown as well. But he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you this, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. But Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and they drove him out of town, and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to, you, to you, Lord Christ. Christ. In epiphany season, we consider the life and ministry of Jesus, and we're continuing on in our um, in our look at the gospel of Luke. This is a beautiful chapter where Jesus is making several very bold claims. Um, You'll often hear Christians from either political party in this country uh, talk about the fact that Jesus isn't political, that we shouldn't politicize Jesus. We can't make Jesus political. And and in a sense, that's true. You cannot, with any good conscience, say that Jesus would have been an, either a, a Democrat or a Republican because those are secular human constructs. But when we read passages like this from Luke chapter 4, it is clear that Jesus is very, very political because it's all about allegiance, because in this chapter, Jesus is declaring himself to be the king. For hundreds of years after this scroll was written, people would have been reading the Isaiah scroll during, say, a Sabbath synagogue service, and it is a clear prophecy about the promised Messiah and about God putting to right all the wrong things in this world. So imagine that you're sitting in that synagogue in Nazareth, On a Saturday morning. Imagine that you're sitting there and and hearing this passage being read from Isaiah, and maybe you've heard this passage read, if you're old enough, dozens of times before. But then imagine seeing someone who looks just like everyone else, just a, a local guy of about 30, stands up and reads this passage, and then says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, the words of this prophecy which is hugely important to your people and your nation and your whole identity. This prophecy that God gave us 500 years ago that is pivotal to your understanding of God's plan of redemption for his creation. Today, right now, this prophecy has come true in your presence. This is a dramatic statement that he's making. It's it's a campaign kickoff statement that he's making. And what's, say, what's Jesus saying? that his kingdom is gonna be like? Well, he's uplifting the poor, he's centering the stranger, but most importantly, he is proclaiming himself to be the the promised Messiah, the anointed king. So first thing he does in, in quoting this passage from Isaiah, you can't not hear it, it's in the first sentence. Jesus is uplifting the poor. Jesus talks about the poor a lot. And you can see this especially in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is fixed. Luke is um, deals with the poor and the marginalized more than any other gospel. But the reason that Jesus in any of the gospels talks about the poor a lot is that Jesus spends a lot of time quoting the Old Testament, and it turns out that the Old Testament talks about the poor a lot. the The Old Testament or the Old Covenant was the covenant that God made with His people in order to in order to bless them, in order to to give them the story of redemption and to give them a code and a calling of how they should now live in light of what God had already done. And so it's not just a a dusty old list of rules that the people of God had to follow in, uh, in order to get God to like them. It's not what it was. This is God telling his people how life works best, especially in light of what he has already done for them. And it's, put, it's, it's basically setting up his kingdom. And every kingdom has rules. And God gave his people a pattern or a, a list of guidelines of how things are going to work in his kingdom, how life works best, living under the rule and reign of the ultimate and promised king. And one of those guidelines or patterns is helping others and providing for those less fortunate than you. So when Jesus is quoting Isaiah, he is not just making new stuff up he's literally reading the jews words back to them he's reading the scroll of the prophet so in this sense quoting from isaiah to these people in the synagogue would not have been the most shocking part of what he said he reads the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me and that means in old testament terms that anointed either means that the person being anointed is either a prophet or a king and in this case actually both he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So that's Jesus saying he's bringing his gospel. Gospel is good news. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. There are two times in the history of Israel, very important times, where Israel was captive. They were captive slaves in Egypt. And then later on, they were captive exiles in Babylon. And recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Feed the hungry, clothe the poor, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the orphan, plead the case of the widow. These things are not modern, radical, progressive ideas. They are the commands of God to his people from his preserved authoritative word. Now, how much we should, as Christians, be exclusively doing this ourselves versus how much we should be doing that while at the same time advocating that our government and our nation adopts this, these values. That, that, that's a good debate that Christians can have with one another. But we have to start with the underlying principle that selfless giving to those who are in need, giving of ourselves to those who have less than we do, is an unassailable good, according to the Bible. Isaiah thought so. Jesus thought so. But that's not the shocking part of this. They would have heard this scripture over and over again. They would have been familiar with this idea, the pattern of caring for the poor, the oppressed, the widows and the orphans. That wasn't what made them so mad that they tried to take him up to a cliff to throw them off. of. It. What made him mad is when he actually started preaching his sermon. And we only get one line of it. So it reads like it could be the shortest sermon in the Bible. But it probably wasn't the whole sermon it's if you look at the language of it it's it's probably just the first line because it says that as he went on that the that the people were um enraptured by his gracious words because this part of it this actually was his preaching we we think of it in a in a modern context that when you stand when you stand up in front of the church that that's the preaching time and then when you sit back down you're done so it can almost seem like this was a bit of a throwaway line like he got done reading the scroll he sat back down in the first pew of the church, and kind of over his shoulder, he said, "Oh, by the way, uh, this is me, and I'm here, but this is actually not true." Um, the The Old Testament, the I'm sorry, the, the the synagogue time, you would stand up to read from the scrolls of the of the Old Testament, but you would sit back down to preach. And usually, your 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 disciples, your most fervent followers, would actually sit at your feet, and so the idea of sitting at the feet of Jesus comes because he himself was seated when he was preaching. So sitting down didn't mean that the preaching was over. It meant that it was actually starting. So his sermon begins, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And, and, and yet we get two very different pictures of what the reaction to that. Firstly, everyone was amazed at this wisdom that he was dropping. In verse 22, it says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. But at the same time, they understandably had questions. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, basically, like, we know this guy. Nazareth is not a big town. Isn't that just like the guy from down the street? And so this is kind of the the, the first century version of, of people saying, you know, basically questioning where this man might get the audacity to declare himself the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. Like, basically, who do you think you are? But then, as if that wasn't bad enough, then he said something that made them really mad. He started to hint at an Old Testament pattern that might not be as popular or as prevalent as care for the oppressed, but is definitely there. Because he started talking about God's plan to expand his definition of who God's covenant people are. And and, and we saw this a couple weeks ago with John the Baptist. People were coming to John claiming their birthright as children of Abraham was some sort of inherited salvation that they were promised. The Jews were pretty clear about who was part of God's family and who wasn't. Jews were and everybody else wasn't unless they became Jews. But throughout the Old Testament, and Jesus brings this out, God has used various means to start to bring his message outside of his covenant family. That's what the covenant family was for. It wasn't meant to keep this message to themselves. It was meant to be a light to those around them. And we see examples of God doing this. We see it over and over. Tamar, the wife of Judah, who is a Canaanite woman, ends up being part of Jesus' genealogy. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, part of Jesus' genealogy. Ruth, the Moabite woman, also in the line of Jesus. And he mentions Naaman, a Syrian general, who is a leper healed by one of God's prophets. We see the entire city of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, the the capital of the Assyrian empire, enemies of Israel who were called on to repent and have faith in God by Jonah, one of God's prophets. And what's the example that that Jesus uses of, of why his people in his own hometown aren't hearing him? This stuff, Elijah going to a Gentile woman, Naaman, a Gentile Syrian general, being healed by God over and over and over again. That's basically the pattern that Jesus is setting up of why his own people aren't hearing him and who his message was for. It says, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came on the land, and Elijah went to none of them. He didn't go to any of the widows in Israel. In first Kings around chapter. 17 through 20, there was a long drought that resulted in a huge famine. And who was the one person that God specifically sent Elijah to? It was a Gentile woman in Sidon. Jesus goes on. He says there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. So who's the one guy that that God had His prophet Elisha heal of leprosy? A non-Israelite general. So in verse 28, once you start to understand what Jesus is saying in verse 28, it's understandable the reaction they had when they heard these things. It says, "All the synagogue were filled with wrath." These people had positioned themselves not only not only as God's chosen ones, which they were, but as God's only chosen ones. As the only ones who could ever possibly be God's chosen ones. And so now Jesus is basically saying, "Yeah, there've been lots of times when God's people didn't want to hear God's message. And so the way that God chose to react to that and forward his mission was to turn to the outsiders. And not just outsiders, in some cases, actually high-ranking people who would easily have been identified as enemies of God, Naaman, the Syrian general, the entire capital city of of Nineveh, or Cyrus, the leader of the Persian Empire, who who currently had the Israelites exiled in his kingdom who was chosen by God to be one of his prophets. So Jesus was saying, yeah, that's basically what's happening here again now. And so it's no wonder that they wanted to kill him. But what's Jesus' message throughout all this? What's the overarching thing that he's telling them and that he's telling us? I think the question that you have to ask in a passage like this is what kind of king does Jesus say he's going to be? What does his kingdom look like? Between the Isaiah passage that he quoted and between the Old Testament examples that he gave to those people, how are we supposed to look at King Jesus? And I think that the answer becomes clear, and it truly is good news. He is a comforter. Elijah brought God's comfort to a poor widow who was not part of God's covenant people. Jesus is a healer. Elisha gave God's healing to someone who was an enemy of God. Jesus is a rebuilder and a restorer. He, he quotes Isaiah. He says, God has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is basically a phrase that means to proclaim the reign of the final king or, or the age of the promised Messiah. That's the king that God promised, and that's the king that God has sent a healer and a redeemer and a restorer, basically a servant king, a lover of his enemies, a compassionate provider. And that's who we're ruled by. And that's why this can be seen to be good news. That's who we're ruled by and that's who we're called to follow. And and it's important to remember that anytime Jesus talks about following me, it doesn't just mean speak well of me. It doesn't just mean wear my t-shirt and wave my flag. I mean, it is those things, but it's, it's it's more than that. Follow me in that context always meant apprentice with me, imitate me, learn from my example. And that's what we're called to do because in the same way that the Israelites were called to be God's covenant people because of what God had already done for them, we are called to be followers of Jesus because of what he has already done for us. That's what citizenship in the, in the reign of King Jesus looks like. Because, because the, the, the reality is that the specific people that Jesus is talking about here, by quoting Isaiah, the specific people that Jesus is talking about is all of us. The poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, that's, that's humanity. Now, the, I want to be clear on, on this. It's easy to, to say a sentence like that and you end up just spiritualizing the entire human problems of the Bible. And you can't spiritualize these commands away. You can't say, oh, well, when the Bible calls us to care for the poor, it really just means to care for the poor in spirit or to care for everyone because we're all poor without Jesus in our lives. Or when, when the Bible calls us to care for the widows and orphans, inviting the stranger into our home, caring for the hungry and oppressed, it, it does, mean more than that. But it can't mean less than that. Do you you know what I mean? Like, If you overly spiritualize these commands to provide for the tangible physical needs of people, you will not end up providing for the tangible physical needs of people. It literally means to give literal shelter and food to literal poor people. It literally means to invite literal strangers into your literal home and to give them out of what you have. So, when the Bible says care for the needy, it does mean that, but it also means more than that. Because the reality is that all of us are strangers until we are adopted by God, united with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. All of us were enslaved to sin, captive to our own desires, and we would still be apart from the grace of Christ in our lives. And so, the offer that jesus makes of following him is for everyone because through jesus the the idea of who god's covenant family is has just exploded outwards to mean not just jews but everyone who believes in jesus the messiah everyone who recognizes that jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves because he was god and yet the people in the synagogue were right he was also just a guy from down the street in Nazareth, Joseph's son, Jesus, from, you know, two blocks away. And he's saying that part of God's plan is for him, this guy from Nazareth, two blocks away. Part of God's plan to bring salvation is that it comes through him and him alone, but that it's not just for the Jews. It's for everyone everywhere. And so for the for the people hearing it it's no wonder they wanted to kill him. But for so many people throughout history when he proclaims this it's no wonder that they want to follow him because they can see themselves in the people that he came to save. They can see themselves wanting to be a part of this. They can see themselves saying, "Yes, this man really is who he says he is." Those who know that they are poor who know that they're enslaved, who know that they're strangers and aliens apart from the work of Christ, to someone who knows what their real condition is as a human being, to someone who's willing to be honest with themselves about what the actual condition of their heart is. Jesus's proclamation of good news really is good news, that he has come to set us free. But I think the key is you have to be able to be honest with yourself to receive this good news. Um, there was a uh, a metropolitan in the Russian Orthodox Church, which is kind of like an archbishop, um, a guy named Anthony Bloom uh, or Anthony of Soros. And he lived in the 20th century. And, and Metropolitan Anthony said that God can save the sinner that you are, but he can't save the saint that you pretend to be. God can save the sinner that you are, but not the saint that you pretend to be. So to those who who really know what their true condition is, who know that they are poor apart from Christ, enslaved apart from Christ, then Jesus's proclamation of his kingship, this kicking off of his, of his campaign, this incredibly political statement, proclaiming himself to be king really is good news. And so then therefore to build a life Following that kind of king is freedom that we could never get for ourselves. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for King Jesus. We thank you that he is reigning and ruling today. We thank you for his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And as we, as we march from epiphany into Lent and we start to consider all that he had to go through and suffer in order to win that salvation for us, Lord, would you use this time to make us ever more grateful for this unbelievable gift that we've been given, for this grace that you've shown upon us when we couldn't have possibly ever merited it. And God, I pray that you would then Use that gratitude to fuel our our to to fuel us in our in our mission that you've given us, to fuel us in our desire to follow Jesus more fully. In his name we pray. Amen.